Schlag Talk Radio. There was a lawyer once. His name was Francis Scott Key. He penned a song that I'm sure you're aware of. You've seen it. It's in most hymnals throughout our churches. It's called the National Anthem. It is our song as an American. We go, however, to a ball game. We stand in our church services and we sing the words of that song. And they float over our minds and our lips and we don't even realize what we're singing. Most of us have memorized it as a child, but we've never really thought about what it means. Let me tell you a story. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Baltimore. The colonies were engaged in vicious conflict with the mother country, Britain. Because of this conflict and the protractedness of it, they had accumulated prisoners on both sides. The American colonies had prisoners and the British had prisoners. And the American government initiated a move. They went to the British and they said, let us negotiate for the release of these prisoners. They said, we want to send a man out to discuss this with you. They were holding the American prisoners in boats about a thousand yards offshore. And they said, we want to send a man by the name of Francis Scott Key. He will come out and negotiate to see if we can make a mutual exchange. On the appointed day in a rowboat, he went out to this boat and he negotiated with the British officials. And they reached a conclusion that men could be exchanged on a one-for-one basis. Francis Scott Key, jubilant with the fact that he'd been successful, went down below in the boats, and what he found was a cargo hold full of humanity, men. And he said, men, I've got news for you tonight. You're free. He said, tonight I have negotiated successfully your return to the colonies. He said, you'll be taken out of this boat, out of this filth, out of your chains. As he went back up on board to arrange for their passage to the shore, the admiral came and he said, we have a slight problem. He said, we will still honor our commitment to release these men, but it'll be merely academic after tonight. It won't matter. And Francis Scott Key said, what do you mean? He said, well, Mr. Key, he said, tonight we have laid an ultimatum upon the colonies. Your people will either capitulate and lay down the colors of that flag that you think so much of, or you see that fort right over there, Fort Henry? He said, we're going to remove it from the face of the earth. He said, how are you going to do that? He said, if you will, scan the horizon of the sea. And as he looked, he could see hundreds of little dots. And he said, that's the entire British war fleet. He said, all of the gunpowder, all of the armament is being called upon to demolish that fort. It will be here within striking distance in a matter of about two and a half hours. He said, the war is over. These men would be free anyway. He said, you can't shell that fort. He said, that's, that's a large fort. He said, it's full of women and children. He says, it's predominantly not a military fort. He said, don't worry about it. They said, we've left them a way out. And he said, what's that? He said, do you see that flag way up on the rampart? He said, we have told them that if they will lower that flag, the shelling will stop immediately. And we'll know that they've surrendered, and you'll now be under British rule. Francis Scott Key went down below and told the men what was about to happen. And they said, how many ships? He said, hundreds. The ships got closer. Francis Scott Key went back up on top and he said, Men, I'll shout down to you what's going on as we watch. As twilight began to fall and as the haze hung over the ocean as it does at sunset, suddenly the British war fleet unleashed. He says the sound was deafening. There were so many guns that there were no reliefs. He said it was absolutely impossible to talk or hear. He said suddenly the sky, although dark, was suddenly lit. And he says from down below, all he could hear the men, the prisoners, saying was, tell us where the flag is. What have they done with the flag? Is the flag still flying over the rampart? Tell us. One hour, two hours, three hours into the shelling, 
every time the bomb would explode and it would be close to the flag, they could see the flag in the illuminated red glare of that bomb. And Francis Scott Key would report down to the men below, it's still up. It's not down. The admiral came and he said, your people are insane. He said, what's the matter with them? He said, don't they understand this is an impossible situation? Francis Scott Key said, he remembered what George Washington had said. He said, the thing that sets the American Christian apart from all other people in the world is he will die on his feet before he'll live on his knees. The Admiral said, we have now instructed all of the guns to focus on... Dreams and I 
of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist, for we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. It is a system which has constricted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silent, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. I appeared before the Congressional Committee to tell what I knew of activity, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. The consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world for the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance with this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN standards. I had planned another closing message, but I feel compelled to say what I'm about to say. Now, I risk sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but it's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. On the outskirts of the national capital today, black limousines with darkened windows converged on a hotel where private security guards imposed ironclad control. The limos carried royalty, political power brokers, and industrial titans to a secret meeting that will last all weekend. It's known as the Bilderberg Group. Could their objective be world domination? Money from our treasury is now being spent for this effort. We will have a new currency, 
and a new constitution modeled on the Soviet Union's constitution. Our rights will not be inalienable, but they will be granted by government who can also take them away. This is terrorism of the most worst kind, brought on you by our own government. The strongest, freest nation in the history of mankind will be averaged into world communism. It is a big idea, a new world order. A new world is emerging. It is a new world order. The new world order is emerging. A new world order can be created. A new world order. The 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 new world order. A world order. A new world order. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. I think even that, even that does not describe why the world has changed so much and why the world has turned so much towards a new world order and a new kind of civilization. France intends to proceed together with all people of goodwill around the world. This battle to build a new world order of the 21st century. It's about the peace of Europe and a new world order. A new world order. The new world order. New world order. A new international order. New global order. President Obama and British Prime Minister Gordon today calling for a new world order. Is this some sort of a new world order which, which Gordon Brown kind of alluded to? God is setting up a new world order and his plan in an era of globalization, of political interdependence where the world is ever more swiftly opening up and the cliche about a global community becomes an economic, political, often social reality. In this new world, in this new world, British Prime Minister Brown today declared a new world order is emerging. We want to know what you think, so our poll question is, are you excited that a new world order is emerging, or are you concerned about America's sovereignty? What is this new world order all about? It is about a reversal of the American Revolution. American Revolution was a bunch of farm kids, and kids get in working in blacksmith shops, and working in other jobs, standing up to the greatest army on earth, in places like Lexington and Concord, and saying to the whole world that forever, no matter what happens, we Americans will decide here and decide for ourselves our own destiny. The new world order is the reversal, the overturning of that revolution. That's what the end goal is. America is a rich province, part of their new world order. But I give you my word, if ever I stand up on that east wing of the Capitol and take my oath as President of the United States, when my hand goes up, their new world order comes crashing down. In the near future, Earth is dominated by a powerful world government. Once free nations are slaves to the will of a tiny elite, the dawn of a new dark age is upon mankind. Countries are a thing of the past. Every form of independence is under attack, with the family and even the individual itself nearing extinction. Close to 80% of the Earth's population has been eliminated. The remnants of a once free humanity are forced to live within highly controlled, compact, prison-like cities. Travel is highly restricted. Superhighways connect the megacities and keep the population from entering into unauthorized zones. No human activity is private. AI supercomputers chronicle and categorize every action. A prison planet dominated by a ruthless gang of control freaks whose power can never be challenged. This is the vision of the global elite, their goal. A program of total dehumanization where the science of tyranny is lost. A worldwide control grid 
designed to ensure the overlord's monopoly of power forever. Our species will be condemned to this nightmare future unless the masses are awakened to the New World Order master plan and mobilized to defeat it. Elected by a secretive group, the Georgia Guidestones are a testament to the elite's plan for a world religion, global laws, with a global court and army to enforce it. And set in stone, it is written that the population never rise above 500 million. In this film, you will learn how our world is truly governed. You will see how highly secretive roundtable groups interlock to form a global intelligence network. This group has been steering planetary affairs for hundreds of years. Now in the final stage, they prepare for open world government. A goal tyrants throughout history have lusted us. centuries. It's been receiving tremendous play over the last half of the 20th century. Uh, George Bush, the first senior president, George Bush, used it a lot in his speeches and really implies that he really wants to see a order in which we have a universal or a global type of governance in which every human being on planet Earth is ultimately responsible for the policies that are being formulated at the international level. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's really always the same. You go back throughout all of history, the Roman Empire, the Soviet Union, Hitler during the Nazism was always saying that it's going to create the utopia for the average person, when in fact, history always shows that it does exactly the opposite. Conquest and empire is as old as civilization. Babylon, Egypt and Greece. They all built empires in an attempt to rule the world. The Roman system at its peak dominated the known world. Complex governmental systems were developed to control diverse populations. During the period between the 15th and 19th century, new empires emerged and again waged war for supremacy. The nobility, as well as the thriving merchant class, were financed by a handful of private banks. Many of the great money houses would hedge their bets and finance both sides of a war. Sophisticated intelligence-gathering networks gave the financiers a clear edge over the governments they were slowly gaining control of. On the 18th of June, 1815, agents of the British arm of the Rothschild family looked on as Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte fought desperately to save his army from the jaws of a British-Prussian pincer attack. A Rothschild agent was able to get the news of Napoleon's defeat at the hands of Lord Wellington to Nathan Rothschild a full 20 hours before the news reached London. Nathan the head of the British arm of the Rothschild family put out the rumor to the London Stock Exchange that Napoleon had won the war. Stocks plunged by 98% and Rothschild was then able to buy up the entire British economy for pennies on the pound. When the news of Napoleon's defeat finally arrived, stocks soared. Britain was now the undisputed ruler of Europe, and Rothschild ruled England. The already dominant British Empire grew even more aggressive. Her troops and bureaucracy spread across the globe. The sun never set on Britannia's holdings. The banking cartel funded, in fact, since about 1800, they have funded both sides of almost every war. And, of course, they're getting the interest off of the loans that they've given the various governments and the wars that they have actually helped stimulate and create. By 1900, Germany was a rising force. 
and the leader of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, world War I, for instance, there was absolutely no reason to have World War I, except that it was an ideal opportunity for the banking cartel to make a pile of money by funding both sides of that particular war. Armaments companies financed by Rothschild controlled banks in Germany, France, England, and Austria bankrolled all the factions. At least 20 million were killed in the war. It was a conflict so terrible the people vowed to never fight again. They dubbed it the war to end all wars. The question is, why did they want war? Well, first of all, there's money and power. But secondly, they wanted to create the League of Nations. They had this in their plans all along, and as a consequence, once the war was over or about to be over, they began to formulate this idea of a League of Nations so this would never, ever happen again. Hundreds of years of practice made the British experts at hiding their empire behind puppet governments and councils. In the name of stopping all future conflicts, they proposed that countries would join a League of Nations. Their true intention was for the League to serve as a framework for world government. President Woodrow Wilson, who had spearheaded the establishment of the private Federal Reserve System in the United States in 1913, strongly supported the establishment of the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson was a very naive president. He was basically a college professor that was grafted into this whole system. The League convened in Paris in 1919, but many nations recognized it as a threat to their sovereignty and refused to join. Frustrated by the U.S. Congress blocking the League of Nations, British intelligence, with the help of the Rockefeller family, set up the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City in 1921. The Council recruited the best and brightest of American life to support the growth of the Anglo-American Empire. The CFR's stated mission is to abolish all nation-states in favor of an all-powerful world government administered by a tiny elite. By 1930, the promoters of world government had split into two interlocking camps. The Fabian Socialists centered in London and the Fascists based in Italy and Germany. National Socialism will use its own revolution for establishing a new world order. Adolf Hitler. Supporters of the fascists in the United States and England believed that the military should be used to quickly transform the world into a new world order. All the more sophisticated practitioners of globalism stated that incrementalism was the sure path to world domination. Congressional Medal of Honor winner Major General Smedley Butler went public in 1934 exposing an attempt by the robber barons to launch a military overthrow of the United States. The war hero testified to the McCormick-Dickstein Committee in Congress that some of the most powerful men in America had tried to recruit him to lead a military coup so they could set up National Socialism in the United States. Here before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. The fascists had also made deep inroads in England. Edward VIII, King of England, was forced to advocate the throne because of his public support for Hitler. In the build-up to World War II, and during the conflict, the bankers again financed both sides, just as they had done with Napoleon. With the rise and fall of the Third Reich, Europe lay in ruins.
Once again, the elite claimed that only global governance could save humanity from certain destruction. And this time, the elite would succeed in setting up their world body. In April of 1945, at the Presidio Naval Base in San Francisco, the United Nations was founded by the victors of World War II. The United Nations complex was then built in New York City on land donated by John D. Rockefeller. Shortly after the elite established the United Nations as their base in the United States, the newly formed World Council quickly began work on the next phase in their plan, the incremental formation of continental superstates. The first step in their trilateral plan was the creation of the European Union. Unifying Europe had been tried many times and was extremely unpopular. Where Napoleon and Hitler had failed to accomplish their goals using force, the globalists would succeed using stealth. The British spearheaded the formation of the Council of Europe on May 5, 1949. The Treaty of London claimed to only establish trade ties between European nations, like NAFTA or GATT in North America. Its true intention was the formation of a European superstate. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations, of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. Now, here are the aims for the United States. One, greatly expanded government spending for every conceivable means of getting rid of ever larger sums of American money as wastefully as possible. Two, higher and then much higher taxes. Three, an increasingly unbalanced budget despite the higher taxes. Four, wild inflation of our currency. Five, government controls of prices, wages, and materials supposedly to combat inflation. Six, greatly increased socialistic controls over every operation of our economy and every activity of our daily lives. This is to be accompanied naturally and automatically by a correspondingly huge increase in the size of our bureaucracy and in both the cost and reach of our domestic government. Seven, far more centralization of power in Washington and the practical elimination of our state lines. There is a many-faceted drive at work to have our state lines eventually mean no more within the nation than our county lines do now within the states. Eight, the steady advance of federal aid to and control over our educational system, leading to complete federalization of our public education. Nine, a constant hammering into the American consciousness of the horror of modern warfare, the beauties and the absolute necessity of peace, peace always on communist terms, of course. And ten, the consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself. began as the American colonies sought to detach from England and its oppressive monarchy. Though many reasons are cited for the revolution, one in particular sticks out as the prime cause, that King George III of England outlawed the interest-free, independent currency the colonies were producing and using for themselves, in turn forcing them to borrow money from the Central Bank of England at interest, immediately putting the colonies into debt. And as Benjamin Franklin later wrote, 
that the refusal of King George III to allow the colonies to operate an honest money system which freed the ordinary man from the clutches of the money manipulators was probably the prime cause of the revolution. In 1783, America won its independence from England. However, its battle against the central bank concept and the corrupt, greed-filled men associated with it had just begun. So what is a central bank? A central bank is an institution that produces the currency of an entire nation. Based on historical precedent, two specific powers are inherent in central banking practice. The control of interest rates and the control of the money supply, or inflation. The central bank does not simply supply a government economy with money, it loans it to them at interest. Then, through the use of increasing and decreasing the supply of money, the central bank regulates the value of the currency being issued. It is critical to understand that the entire structure of this system can only produce one thing in the long run, debt. It doesn't take a lot of ingenuity to figure this scam out. For every single dollar produced by the central bank is loaned at interest. That means every single dollar produced is actually the dollar plus a certain percent of debt based on that dollar. And since the central bank has the monopoly of the production of the currency for the entire country, and they loan each dollar out with immediate debt attached to it, where does the money to pay for the debt come from? It can only come from the central bank again which means the central bank has to perpetually increase its money supply to temporarily cover the outstanding debt created, which in turn, since that new money is loaned out at interest as well, creates even more debt. The end result of this system without fail is slavery, for it is impossible for the government and thus the public to ever come out of the self-generating debt. The founding fathers of this country were well aware of this. By the early 20th century, the U.S. had already implemented and removed a few central banking systems, which were swindled into place by ruthless banking interests. At this time, the dominant families in the banking and business world were the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Warburgs, the Rothschilds. And in the early 1900s, they sought to push, once again, legislation to create another central bank. However, they knew the government and public were very weary of such an institution, so they needed to create an incident to affect public opinion. So, J.P. Morgan, publicly considered a financial luminary at the time, exploited his mass influence by publishing rumors that a prominent bank in New York was insolvent or bankrupt. Morgan knew this would cause mass hysteria, which would affect other banks as well. And it did. The public, in fear of losing their deposits, immediately began mass withdrawals. Consequently, the banks were forced to call in their loans, causing the recipients to sell their properties, and thus a spiral of bankruptcies, repossessions, and turmoil emerged. Putting the pieces together a few years later, Frederick Allen of Life magazine wrote, The Morgan interests took advantage to precipitate the panic, guiding it shrewdly as it progressed. Unaware of the fraud, the Panic of 1907 led to a congressional investigation headed by Senator Nelson Aldrich, who had intimate ties to the banking cartels and later became part of the Rockefeller family through marriage. The commission, led by Aldrich, recommended a central bank should be implemented so a panic like 1907 could never happen again. This was the spark the international bankers needed to initiate their plan. In 1910, a secret meeting was held at a J.P. Morgan estate on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. It was there that the central banking bill called the Federal Reserve Act was written. This legislation was written by bankers, not lawmakers. This meeting was so secretive, so concealed from government and public knowledge, that the ten or so figures who attended disguised their names when en route to the island. After this bill was constructed, it was then handed over to their political frontman, Senator Nelson Aldrich, to push through Congress. And in 1913, with heavy political sponsorship by the bankers, Woodrow Wilson became president, having already agreed to sign the Federal Reserve Act in exchange for campaign support. 
And two days before Christmas, when most of Congress was at home with their families, the Federal Reserve Act was voted in, and Wilson in turn made it law. Years later, Woodrow Wilson wrote, in regret. Congressman Lewis McFadden also expressed the truth after the passage of the bill. A world banking system was being set up here, a super state controlled by international bankers acting together to enslave the world for their own pleasure. The Fed has usurped the government. Now, the public was told that the Federal Reserve System was an economic stabilizer and inflation and economic crises were a thing of the past. Well, as history has shown, nothing is further from the truth. The fact is, the international bankers now had a streamlined machine to expand their personal ambitions. For example, from 1914 to 1919, the Fed increased the money supply by nearly 100%, resulting in extensive loans to small banks and the public. Then, in 1920, the Fed called in mass percentages of the outstanding money supply, thus resulting in the supporting banks having to call in huge numbers of loans, and, just like 1907, Bank runs, bankruptcy, and collapse occurred. Over 5,400 competitive banks outside of the Federal Reserve System collapsed, further consolidating the monopoly of a small group of international bankers. Privy to this crime, Congressman Lindbergh stepped up and said in 1921, under the Federal Reserve Act, panics are scientifically created. The present panic is the first scientifically created one worked out as we figure a mathematical equation. However, the panic of 1920 was just a warm-up. From 1921 to 1929, the Fed again increased the money supply, resulting once again in extensive loans to the public and banks. There was also a fairly new type of loan called a margin loan in the stock market. Very simply, the margin loan allowed an investor to put down only 10% of a stock's price, with the other 90% being loaned through the broker. In other words, a person could own $1,000 worth of stock with only $100 down. This method was very popular in the roaring 1920s, as everyone seemed to be making money in the market. However, there was a catch to this loan. It could be called in at any time and had to be paid within 24 hours. This is termed a margin call, and the typical result of a margin call is the selling of the stock purchased with the loan. So, a few months before October in 1929, J.D. Rockefeller, Bernard Barack, and other insiders quietly exited the market. And on October 24, 1929, the New York financiers who furnished the margin loans started calling them in in mass. This sparked an instantaneous, massive sell-off in the market, for everyone had to cover the margin loan. It then triggered mass bank loans for the same reason, in turn collapsing over 16,000 banks, enabling the conspiring international bankers to not only buy up rival banks at a discount, but to also buy up whole corporations at pennies on the dollar. It was the greatest robbery in American history. But that didn't stop there. Rather than expanding the money supply in order to recover from this economic collapse, the Fed actually contracted it, fueling one of the largest depressions in history. Once again outraged, Congressman Lewis McFadden, a longtime opponent of the banking cartel, began bringing impeachment proceedings against the Federal Reserve Board, saying of the crash and depression, it was a carefully contrived occurrence. International bankers sought to bring about a condition of despair so that they might emerge the rulers of us all. Not surprisingly, and after two previous assassination attempts, McFadden was poisoned at a banquet before he could push for the impeachment. Now, having reduced the society to squalor, the Federal Reserve bankers decided that the gold standard should be removed. In order to do this, they needed to acquire the remaining gold in the system. So, under the pretense of helping to end the depression, came the 1933 gold seizure. Under the threat of imprisonment for 10 years, everyone in America was required to turn in all gold bullion to the Treasury, essentially robbing the public of what little wealth they had left. And at the end of 1933, the gold standard was abolished. If you look at a dollar bill from before 1933, it says it is redeemable in gold. If you look at a dollar bill today, it says it is legal tender, which means it is backed by absolutely nothing. It is worthless paper. The only thing that gives our money value is how much of it is in circulation. Therefore, the power to regulate the money supply 
is also the power to regulate its value, which is also the power to bring entire economies and societies to its knees. They create money out of nothing. Oh, what a scam. They have so much money, they don't care about money. All they care about is power. All they care about is be able to control the, the political situation so it goes their way. After a man has far more money than he possibly can spend for pleasures, what is left to excite him? For those with a ruling class mentality, the answer is power, raw power over other human beings. Money can buy such power only to a point. Beyond that, politics is the sport, and world politics is the ultimate game. In 1954, the elite of the planet met in secret at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeck, Holland. The Bilderberg Group would later admit that their mission was the formation of the EU. Once the EU was established, under the guise of trade deals, a North American Union and Asian Union would be formed. The three interlocking superstates formed the core of the global government while the United Nations would serve as a world regulatory and enforcement body over the third world subregions. The Bilderberg Group consists of the heads of all of the managing roundtable groups that steer individual countries. Picture the elite power structure of the world as a giant pyramid, with only the elite of the elite at the tip top of the capstone. The group has been so secretive that until the mid 1980s, Joseph Gibson podcasting here. Understand the times in which we live today. You know, sometimes I wonder if we really do need the new world order. You know, sometimes I wonder because yeah, you look at the people out there and the types we have out there in society. But is it their fault when they've been programmed and it's been designed to fail for them? I don't know. I don't know because sometimes you could give people opportunity and they still can't achieve. You know, I mean, so I just don't know on that part. I can't play God, that's for sure. But anyway, tomorrow is primary day, and everyone knows now my name's on the ballot here in Rockingham County, North Carolina, and uh, it's primary day, and basically I've got a 50-50 chance here of winning this election. I mean, there's one guy running against me, and when so when they go mark, when they go to that ballot, and I'm not the only, you know, there's other... Uh, seats that are people are running for, uh, you know that uh, you have the Congress, the Senate, and everything like that. So when they come to end North Carolina House of Representatives, and they see my name and his name, you know either they're going to vote for him or me, <clears throat> one or the other, you know. And I don't think he's going to get 100% of the vote. So you know unless he's talked to every single registered voter in the county, <laughs> and they all support an allegiance to him. So I, I highly doubt that, considering that I have four endorsements, four major endorsements that uh, that are endorsing me. So, um, 
you know, and uh, some of them are pretty, uh, uh, you know, got a lot of pull, a lot of, a lot of. Uh, I mean, these, one, of, one of my endor- uh, NC Grassroots is endorsing me, and, uh, you know, they're endorsing, uh, you know, a Superior Court judge, appellate court judge, a congressman. Uh, oh, let's see, I got the list here, actually, who they're supporting. And, uh, you know, this is, um, you know, so, the chance, you know, chances are if I pull this off tomorrow and win this primary, you know, the first step of... Uh, of uh, achieving uh, the restoration and restoring our republic that I've been preaching about for years on this podcast show will actually begin. So, uh, you know, I think that will be quite an achievement that many people didn't think I can do or or, or perhaps were rooting against me or, or maybe even uh, whatever, people that have been against me from day one or people that don't want the republic restored or people, the naysayers. You know, or the trolls out there who've attacked me over the years or <clears throat> whatever, the naysayers. But the bottom line is my name is on the ballot, and tomorrow is the big day. So it's primary day in North Carolina. So if you're in your Rockingham County, go out and vote. And uh, vote Joe Gibson for North Carolina House of Representatives, District 65. And uh, let's let's clean up the uh, mess here. Let's not drain the swamp. Let's get rid of the swamp altogether. Why drain it? Because it'll just fill back up again. Just get rid of it, period. Bulldoze over, pour concrete over it, let's build build something else, all right? Get rid of the swamp altogether, right? That's what I say. And there is a swamp out there, and there's a lot of dirty politics out there, and I've seen it now. And I've seen the good old boys club, and I've seen the favoritism, and I've seen how it goes. And, you know, and if you're not buddy-buddy with this one, you're not down with this one. It shouldn't be like that. It should be about doing what's best for the people, not the party, not your buddy, not, not, the, not your sidekick, not your pals. It should be doing what's best for the people. That's what being in public office is all about, doing what's best for your district, for your, who you represent. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to vote strictly along party lines uh, for when legislation comes, because I'll have to vote on legislation. I'm not going to vote just along party lines. I'm going to vote what's constitutional, what's biblical, what the, what's good for the people. Chances are no Democrat's going to come up with any legislation that's going to be good for the people or good for the country or good for the state. So, you know, but, but if they did, I would vote for it, vote for it. I would, if it was good for the people and they obeyed the Constitution. Of course, of course. You have to do what's right. And a lot of people don't do that today. They do what they their buddies have done. So this is a campaign here where the rich got all the money and all the power. And here I am, the little guy. Got no power, no money. Okay? I'm the little guy. Can I win? Can I pull it off? Grassroots. Can the little guy win in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, a small election in a district here? Well, it's, it's actually pretty big. We got 92,000 people in our district, so that's nice. It's not, it's not like I'm coming from a town here of 183, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's quite a large area. So, uh, you know... And who knows what could happen? Just say, hypothetically, I do win tomorrow. And I go on and I win the general election. I beat the Democrat that's going to run against me, which, which I will, you know, that's what will happen. I will beat the Democrat. The Democrat will, a Democrat will not win in Rockingham County. Fact. But you never know. But the way the consensus is now in the numbers and the unaffiliated swaying towards the Republican, I would say, no, they're, they're a long way off before they can turn this uh, county into a Democrat. Uh, uh, a Democrat runs, runs the, uh, represents this district. But, uh, you know, I win the general election. You know, I'm a state legislator, do a good job. Hey, you know, maybe we'll go for a United States congressman. Go up the ladder, United States senator, who knows? You know, and uh, then what happens? Whew, now you're talking. You know, you're up there, up there with the real big criminals now. These are the big time bigwigs up there. 
You know, now you're rubbing shoulders with the uh, real criminals that are, you know, really screwing up America. But that could be a chance to fix things. You never know. You know, people like me in there, more people that, you know, aren't going to sell out to the system, aren't going to sell out to the, uh, you know, uh, and people know, because what am I? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I don't, I don't tolerate it. I don't stand up. Stand, I don't bow, bow down to authority. You know, and 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 give in and get bought off or paid off. Because what difference does it make? What's it going to do for me? Getting paid off or bought off or 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 sell out everybody? What what's that going to what's that going to do for me down the road? Big deal. I've been in this thing since day one to make a change. What's the name of this podcast? Understanding the times in which you live today. Whether people believe what I say or what not, I don't care. I go out and I say what I got to say. That's how it is. So, so we're out there, and, in the, and by the way, my endorsement. Somebody asked me there in the Facebook chat here. Uh, Facebook, uh, I got the uh, Constitutional Constitution Party endorsing me. I've got the uh, Campaign for Liberty endorsing me. You can go to their websites, check it out. They endorse me. Um, I got SavingFatherhood.org endorsing me. I've got uh, ncgrassroots.gov enforcing me, and, uh, enforcing me, <laughs> uh, endorsing me. I'm on their website. You see my picture there. They're endorsing me. So, um, and then I've got uh, several churches across the country that are endorsing me. Uh, Baptist churches. I got a church here in Reedsville that's endorsing me. Uh, AM radio station here that's endorsing me, uh, supporting supporting me. So, uh, so I've got, uh, so I've done my work. I've done my due diligence here. I've done what I can do. If I lose, then I lose. You know, losing is not really an option. But if I lose, hey, I gave it my best shot, and I don't have ten thousand dollars to dump into a campaign. You know, I don't have twenty thousand dollars like my opponent. You know, I don't have the backing of the party and you know, all the big wigs. I don't have the sheriff standing behind me. You know, and all the other good old boys. You know, patting me on the back, getting me speaking engagements and everything. You know, I don't have that. I did it all grassroots, mailing out letters to people, putting up signs, talking to people, you know, talking to people at gas stations here and there, trying to introduce myself to people. That's how I did it. You know, so a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work. I've been awake... Since this, since this thing started back in December, I've been awake until 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the morning writing letters. I must have mailed out at least 20,000 letters. I, mu- I must have. I have so many stamps, I don't even want to look at a stamp anymore. You know, and every, every type of marketing ploy came my way. Oh, deal here. Do this. Oh, we can get you this. Guaranteed this. Text message this. I did go with one company. I did, you know, I had to come up with a little bit of money, and uh, you know, I, I paid it was nine hundred bucks to uh, send out twenty nine thousand emails. That's what we sent out twenty nine thousand emails last week. So, uh, and, and my website, boy, the numbers really shot up on my website there. www.josephgibson.us. I mean, the amount of traffic that's gone through that site now. So it worked. So they read my platform. It says the average time they spent on my platform was like four and a half minutes, which is a long time, four and a half minutes to read my website, and then they, and then what I'm about. So it tells you what sections of my website they visited most and how long they were there and, and how they visited my website, either through uh, cell phone, mobile, or through desk, desktop or through tablet, you know, and then how they got there through Ballotopia, uh, uh, Voter voter 411, um, uh, NC Grassroots, how they got how they got to my link at Google. I remember when I got my first Google click, they're like, congratulations, you got your first Google click, you know, so you got recognized on Google, so now I'm up there in the hundreds now, and they're clicking on it, so, which is pretty good, hundreds, you know, I get hundreds of people clicking on my website every day, that's pretty darn good. So, uh, you know, so the, uh, you know, all I can tell you folks is this, you don't vote for me, what you're going to get is the same thing you've been getting if you don't vote for me. You're going to get your continued inflation. Your price is going to keep going up. It may go down a little bit next year. You know, it fluctuates here and there, but it's going to be the same roller coaster ride. 
property taxes are going to go up. You're going to keep continue to pay more and more and more, and you're going to have less and less of your money in your pocket. And they're going to play their little new world order games, and you're going to see the country continue to uh, disintegrate. And that's what you're going to get. But if you vote for me, you're going to get somebody in there who's going to shake things up, like a Rand Paul. Somebody who's going to stand up and stand up against this stuff. And no more mask mandates. No. You know, forced inoculations. Hell no, you will not be forced to be vaccinated. I will uh, oppose that all day long. I will never, never, ever stand up for any type of vaccination. Nothing like that. No. It's all poison, if you ask me. It's all poison. But that's your choice. You do whatever you want with your body. I mean, I, I just recommend you don't do it. I can't tell you what to do with your body. I cannot. It's not my business to tell you what you do with your body, but you're not your business to tell me what to do with mine either. And it sure ain't the government's job to tell me what to do with my body. But that's what you're going to get. My opponent supports the Real ID Act. He wants you chipped. He wants you chipped. I don't support no Real ID RFID chip. Heck no, man. I want them tracking my every movement, knowing what I buy or sell. No way. Is that what you want? Is that what you want in Rockingham County or North Carolina? Then you vote for the other people. Go ahead. Vote for them. That's what you're going to get. They're going to keep pushing it down your throat. You want more government intrusion, intrusiveness in your life? You want more regulations? You want more laws? More policies? You want more immorality? You want critical race theory? You want all this stuff? Well, vote for the other people. And you'll get it. You'll get it. But you're going to regret it in the end. You know, that's what you're going to get if you vote for the other guy. And they got other people on the ticket, too. Yeah, like I said, there's other races going on tomorrow, too. And you got, and you got to be careful. Do your study. Study these people who you're voting for. Know the candidates. Very important. I actually learned a lot uh, how to study, look uh, research candidates and look up what they're about and everything. And, uh, you know, not just what, the, you know, you hear about and stuff like that. You know, so everyone should know, know about this stuff. Understand who these people are that, are that are running things, running the show. And they are. But they're supposed to be representing your views and representing your concerns and what's needed and what you need. And they're not. We've demonstrated that on this podcast show so many times. Your local representative does not represent you. You can't get a hold of them. They don't talk to you. They're not available. They don't make contact with you. How many times have my, my even just with this podcast show, I tell people, call in. You can call in. I take calls. I let people say what they want, when they want. Open platform. That's how I would be in public office. You can get a hold of me. You can call me. That's how it should be. People say, well, yeah, if you were president, you wouldn't be able to do that. You sure you could. You can do that. Sure, you could do whatever. You know, it's up to you not to go with the norm or the status quo. Censorship, no way, man. Censorship, I don't think anything should be censored. No way. You know, it doesn't mean I believe in pornography being on, the, you know, on the 6 o'clock news either, you know. I mean, come on. It's common sense, man. you got to use common sense. So, uh, yeah, tomorrow is primary day. So uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, things go my way. And, uh, you know, I, 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 put in, I did a good fight and, and everything paid off. The hard work paid off. It'll pay off one day eventually anyway, but let's just hope it pays off a little sooner than later because we're on borrowed time here in America and here in North Carolina. We're everywhere we are. We're on borrowed time. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble, folks. We need to wake up and understand that. Wake up. So any phone call, 657-383-0616, press the number one. And you can get on here live. I don't see too many callers on tonight. I didn't advertise the show, so... I wasn't expecting too many floods, too many of the gates flooded open here. So I may uh, uh, scan the boards here. I may go on a couple other shows. I've been calling around to other podcast shows, actually getting on there and uh, talking, you know, getting my name out there instead of doing this podcast. Uh, I think we did a really big show, what, a couple weeks ago there where I had, what, I mean, call boards were just blitzed. I mean, we just had so many people on. 
Uh, we had a couple, couple back-to-back shows there, but other than that, it's been slow. So, uh, hey, understand the times in which you live today. So, uh, guys out there, pray for me. Uh, go to my website, check me out, www.josephgibson.us. And uh, North Carolina House of Representatives, District 65, Joseph Gibson. And, uh, hey, we can do this. We can start waking up and uh, and uh, waking up the people and waking up the masses and restoring our republic. We can start doing it tomorrow, finally. It's up to you, though. It's up to you. All right, everybody, I'm going to get ready to wrap it up. Unless I see some people pressing number one here, I'm going to get ready to wrap it up. But uh, we'll wrap up the uh, podcast here with a little bit of this. If not, uh, if I don't see any numbers pop up on the board. All right, everybody, God bless. God bless the republic. No weapons of mass destruction were found. Are you kidding me? Do you buy that? There were, there were, there were. I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white. Come on, let us shoot. Blair. Hey, uh, I need to get the rat, the brass to drop rats. I got a wounded girl. We need to take the rest of mine. Oh, it's their fault for bringing their kids to a battle. That's right. The main reason we went into Iraq at the time was we thought he had weapons of mass destruction. It turns out he didn't, but he had the capacity to make weapons of mass destruction. But I also talked about the human suffering in Iraq. Hello, boys and girls. I have a special message for you from the President of the United States. I salute the boys and girls who are buying United States savings stamps and bonds, and they're giving important support to the cause of freedom and the men who fight for us in Vietnam. Congress gave us this authority in August 1964 to do whatever may be necessary. That's pretty far-reaching. That's the sky's the limit. As an American citizen, you have to respect our president, whether I like it or not. It's really not my decision, but I do respect my president, and I will support whatever decision he makes. Music played and people sang Just for me, the church bells rang It is a hard fact that U.S. strikes have resulted in civilian casualties. States knows that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. One of the first things they told me was, you're not even to acknowledge the drone program. You're not even to discuss that it exists. Renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. That reply is... Crashing through the lies and disinformation.